This is Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge on News Talk 770 Radio, Calgary's breaking news and conversation station. Uh, so like I said, we still got a lot more to get to in this hour, but I want to begin in this hour with a conversation about Canada's prison system and what it's like on the inside. Look, most of us will hopefully never end up in prison or really ever have cause to see the inside of a prison, other than maybe, you know, doing the Alcatraz tour, uh, something like that. So what is life like on the inside? What's the day-to-day reality like? Not just for those who were sentenced to be there, but those we ask to, to work there, to oversee all of this. And what is it accomplishing, right? What is the purpose of prison? Part of it is we've decided someone needs to be punished for something they did. Part of that punishment is you're removed from society for a certain amount of time. You lose those freedoms. You don't get to go to work or... Uh, go spend time with friends and loved ones and do all of that stuff. That's taken away from you. Now you're locked up, and we tell you what you get to do, when you get to do it. Right? So that's part of the punishment. I mean, it's also a protection. If you're locked up in a prison, you're not on the street. Therefore, we're protecting society from you. Based on what you did, we've deemed you to be a danger. But then what about when people come out, when they've completed their sentence? Hopefully then. They're coming back into society. They've, they've learned something. They've changed. They're not like they once were. They're not going to do that thing they did before. So how do we get there? So these are some of the themes uh, explored in, in a new book uh, from someone who spent many years working in Canada's prison system. It's called Down Inside, 30 Years in Canada's Prison Service. Uh, joining us on the line is the author of this book. His name is Robert Clark. Robert, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you, Rob. I'm glad to be here. I mean, this this is, in many ways, a memoir about your own career and, and things you experienced and, and witnessed. But, it, I mean, it's also, at the same time, it is a book about our prison system. What did you want this book to be? Um, I guess what I wanted was, I wanted the book to be an accurate, an accurate uh, reflection of the way the system is, as I see it. Um, the correctional system is um, unknown to most people. And uh, it's a multifaceted um, system that uh, has some good and some bad. And um, I thought to write a book about it based on what I saw firsthand over 30 years might be interesting to Canadians. And I mean, it, it's a good point because most of us, we will never go to prison, will probably never have a reason to to go to a prison to visit a prison we don't think much of it that's just the place where they send bad guys to most of us yes that's correct and so do you do you hope that people come away from this book with a better understanding of why these prisons are there and and what goes on behind these walls yes i do um the other thing i'm hoping they'll take away from the book is uh, what I fervently believe to be the correct way to run a prison, and that is with humane treatment. I firmly believe that humane treatment and rehabilitation should be the focus of any prison system. And I think that, um, you know, there's there's a, um, a segment of our society that believes that it, um, a tough-on-crime agenda is, is the way to go. And, and you often hear people say that if prison was tougher, criminals would stop committing crimes in order to avoid going back. Right. But my experience, Rob, is that um, crime and punishment is a very complex social issue. And uh, uh, how to solve it is equally complex. But based on what I saw in my dealings with the prisoners over 30 years, I've come to the very firm conclusion that humane treatment and rehabilitation are the only way to succeed. 
Well, expand on that because, yeah, you're right. I think most, most Canadians, you know, prison's a place you don't want to go. And if you're there, it's a place you don't want to go back to. But, but what gets left out in, in that kind of consideration? Well, um, uh, how should I put it? I guess what I would say is that it goes back to my earliest days as a student volunteer in 1978 when I entered the Maximum Security Millhaven Institution in Kingston. Um, and I spent time there with the prisoners two afternoons a week as a, as a student volunteer. And having no frame of reference for how to interact with such people, I just, um, I just exercised uh, politeness and respect and civility in my dealings with them the same way that I talk to most people in my day-to-day life. And what I found was that even uh, some of society's most disenfranchised and perhaps uh, dangerous people uh, will react in kind if they're treated like a human being. And throughout my, my career, as you may know, I worked in seven different federal prisons in many different roles. And everywhere I went, from maximum security to minimum security, I found that whenever I treated the men like human beings, they more or less responded in kind. And the reason that's important is because, if you can guess, prison life can often be quite volatile. And at the drop of a hat, things can go sideways quite quickly. And, you know, some believe that the way to to deal with things like that is through force. Um, and, and my experience was that I could very quickly uh, de-escalate um, issues with one, two, or, or 20 men just by talking to them, using my calming skills and my de-escalation skills in terms of talking quietly, respectfully, hearing what it was they were concerned with, what they're what they were angry at. And, and throughout my career, I had um, immeasurable success uh, day in and day out in working that way. And I was not alone. But the reason I made it part of my book and, and, and part of my message is that the number of us that take that approach working inside prisons is actually a minority. In my experience, many of the staff feel that the prisoners are something less than a human being. And because of that, because of that, because of that, um, that outlook, uh, their treatment of the prisoners day in and, and day out tends to be somewhat, uh, somewhat callous at times. And that can only serve to escalate problems um, inside our prisons, not de-escalate them. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's, it's interesting because clearly, I mean, this, this work mattered to you. Uh, and, you know, I mean, at any point along the way, you know, you could have said, look, this isn't for me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something else. So what was it about yeah. this career that, that kept you in it? Why was it so meaningful to you? Um, well, that's a good question. You know, I, I would have to concede, Rob, that there were many times throughout 30 years that I thought of leaving the service. But right. I firmly believed in the work that I was doing. And um, um, I actually, to this day, believe that all the prisons where I worked were safer because I was there. And not just me. There were many people like myself who brought to work every day um, a benevolent approach to dealing with the prisoners and to try to make sure that things ran smoothly. And it's because of people like that who go in there every day and do their level best under sometimes impossible circumstances, that the prisons run as smoothly as they do. Um, I'm not sure if your listeners are aware, but even by Correctional Services' own numbers, uh, roughly four out of ten 
of everyone that comes to prison is already suffering from at least one mental illness uh, when they come in. So that makes an already difficult environment even more difficult. How much change did you notice uh, over those 30 years? Was, was it considerable or, I mean, is it, is it the opposite? Of, of, are there a lot of aspects of the prison system that really haven't changed or evolved? Well, there's a lot of aspects that haven't changed. I, um, I would say, Rob, that one of the biggest changes I saw was the advent of technology. And I'm not sure that technology in this case uh, uh, made things better. And I'll give you an example. Back in the 1980s, when I was working cell blocks, we used to open the cells uh, with a key. And the barrier at the end of the range, a range is what the term we used to call um, a hallway of cells. So a hallway with cells on it is called a range. And um, the range barrier, which is often kept locked, and all of the cell doors, we open by hand with a key. And what that does is... is um, it puts staff and prisoners um, in face-to-face contact uh, numerous times a day, every day. And my experience was that the more that the prisoners and the staff interacted face-to-face, the more stable the prison tended to be, um, because there is um, some kind of a rapport that starts to build over time. The prisoners and the staff get used to seeing each other. They get used to talking to each other about minor things and sometimes not so minor things. Um, And in my mind, the more time the staff spend with the prisoners, the safer the prison tends to be. In the prisons of today, we're seeing more and more that cell doors are opened uh, electronically from a closed control post somewhere else. Um, Similarly, back in the 80s, we patrol the yard and the gym and the weight room on foot carrying radios and we talked to the inmates and they talked to us. We'd stop and ask them questions if we thought there was anything going on. Nowadays they have closed circuit cameras doing that kind of work. So the prisoners are having less and less face to face contact with staff than they ever did before. And in my view, the less time they spend with pro social people, uh, the less apt they are to um, see options to to what was their previous way of engaging the world, you know, a world they often find to be quite dangerous and and quite negative. Something you talk about in the book is the practice of uh, solitary, solitary confinement, and I wonder if that's something that's changed given that we seem to at least know a lot more about the detrimental impact that can have, but but do you feel that, it, I mean, is it is it still being used? How worried should we be? Um, in my view, it's still being used far too often, and uh, I talk about that in the book. I'll just go back uh, to what I mentioned uh, just a moment ago, is that if, if, if we already know that four out of ten coming into our prisons are suffering from mental illness, then we also know that at least four out of ten are less likely to survive in that environment. And most of the people in solitary confinement, I would say over 95%, are there um, at their own request. For one or more reasons, they fear for their safety. And this tends to be the people who are less uh, mentally sophisticated, um, who are less connected to what's going on inside the prison. They're not the type that uh, tend to be the tough guys. 
And so these these uh, these vulnerable uh, prisoners tend to seek out solitary confinement for their own safety. Um, and once that happens, once you're in solitary confinement, you're pretty much labeled by the system. Uh, all of the inmates, uh, if they know a prisoner is protective custody or has been at any time, will react negatively. Uh, negatively towards them, and some will seek them out to assault them. So it becomes very difficult once a person is labeled to place them somewhere where they will be safe. And the the risk of solitary confinement, and, and I think you touched on it, now that we know about the psychological effects of long-term solitary um, and the kind of damage that it can do to, to people when they're confined in that way for extended periods, it becomes very difficult to get them out within a, a uh, reasonable amount of time. Once they're in solitary confinement, they can't be placed in any population safely unless they go to an institution which is known to house protective custody, such as Warkworth and the old Kingston Penitentiary, or if they go to a prison where no one else knows them and their protective custody status. These two options generally take months to complete. And it's that long duration of time that the prisoner in solitary confinement, languishing away, going slowly crazy, and not knowing when solitary is going to come to an end or when they might be transferred, that in my experience tends to lead to what I guess has been described by experts as a downward spiral, as probably one of the most famous cases of someone who was in solitary with no options. I wanted to ask you about Kingston Pen because uh, you spent some time there. You have a chapter in the book on, on Kingston Pen, which is so notorious for so many reasons. I mean, I, I know some people from Kingston. I mean, it's it's something that really loomed large for people in that city. But, um, the, you know, the, that it shut down, uh, I mean, it, it represented maybe a, a turning point to, to some extent in, in our prison system. How important is you know, the lessons learned from what went on at Kingston and, and how significant was its closing? Well, I think it's closing the best thing that ever happened to the Correctional Service of Canada. Um, I was there almost three years, and, and I had heard before I went there that it was probably the worst prison in all of Canada. And when I left, I would have to agree um, with that assessment. Um, I don't know what's been what's been gained by its closure, um, other than the fact that, it's, you know, there are... Um, there's no one there, but lessons learned and um, and uh, changing attitudes. I I'm really not able to comment about that. My experience with the correctional services is very slow to adapt and very slow to embrace change. It's a very closed system, um, and it's a very uh, very self protected system. Yeah, I mean, you know, getting back to the point you made about the importance of rehabilitation, because most prisoners, they're going to end up back in society at some point, right? And we, we want them to, to be able to make that adjustment and not go back to, to where they once were. But we do have those, the, the worst of the worst, who, who aren't going to reenter society, right? Who are going to remain behind bars likely for the rest of their lives. And how do we deal with, with people like that? Well, um, I guess for those that we know will never be released because they're simply too dangerous and there are some mm-hmm. uh in order to run in order to run a prison safely those people have to be given opportunities to occupy their time in a useful way they have to be given an opportunity to be productive in some sense 
um, and to uh, involve themselves in things that aren't, aren't um, antisocial, such as drug use, um, um, extortion from other prisoners, and so on. So for the, for the small group that stays in, we need to give them something to do, something that, um, that can possibly help to change their attitudes. Um, and for the, as you mentioned, the 95% that are going to get out, um, I believe that uh, we are mandated at, uh, by all Canadians to do the best we can with the time we have them. I think it's, uh, I think it's the highest calling we have if we work inside of a prison is to do everything we can to affect positive change individually and collectively, and that, and that we owe that to Canadians to make sure that every time a person is released from prison, when they step outside that front gate, we've given them a chance, at least a chance to get a foothold and to change their life and to turn it around. If we haven't done that, if we've spent our time tormenting them and ignoring them and uh, um, not engaging them in a productive use of their time, then I believe we've failed Canadians uh, and the prisoners themselves. That's a great point. Well, the book is called Down Inside, 30 Years in Canada's Prison System. Robert Clark, thank you so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Rob. Right, there you go. Uh, again, uh, Robert Clark, that book is called Down Inside, 30 Years in Canada's Prison Service. Uh, we got to take a break here. We're going to come back. Got some other news to get to. Got more time for your phone calls as well at 974-TALK. This is Afternoons on News Talk 770. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.